U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and in the other corner is the XO, the venerable Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everybody. So, I thought today we would get spooky. This is going to be a special spooky episode for Halloween. What do you think? <laughs> I think you agree. So, everybody, turn down the lights, turn on your flashlight, put your heads under the covers, and let's get underway. Let's cast off. So, we're going to do Navy Ghost Stories. I'm not familiar with any of these. No, not at all. Okay, well, first, we're going to the USS Hornet. Okay. So she was christened in 1775, and she was with the Wasp as the first two ships in the new Continental Navy. Now, there would be eight Hornets before the name was never used again. And the eighth and final Hornet set uh, a lot of naval records. She picked up the Apollo 11 and 12 crews out of the sea after their splashdowns. And when she was moored in, well, near San Francisco, she was turned into a museum. And she is also considered one of the most haunted ships open for tours anywhere in the world. Alien ghosts from the moon? <laughs> so... It is widely rumored that she rests a little bit uneasily, even to today, for a lot of different reasons. Because her namesake has gone is going back to the 1700s, a lot of lies have come and go over the years across the decks of the Grey Ghost. World War II by itself would see 140 men lost when the seventh ship to share the name was sunk in 1942. And they think about 300 men have lost their lives during the Hornets commission. 300 in addition to that 142 or 300 total? 300 total. Okay. But they say that the all the accidents and suicides on board her are what keeps her so haunted. For instance, a arresting cable that snapped on her flight deck took off the heads of three men. Oh, no. Other men were sucked into air intakes or blown off the deck by exhaust. And, of course, back in the prop days, a number of men walked right into propellers. And in 2007... A museum volunteer committed suicide in the engine room. That is a lot for, I assume this is a destroyer. This is an aircraft carrier. Her last okay. namesake was an aircraft carrier. Last namesake was an aircraft carrier. Okay. We also have the USS Salem, who is, which is right now in Massachusetts, in Quincy. Well, very fitting uh, name for a haunted ship. And a very fitting place for a ship of such a name. Yes. Because as everyone knows, the Salem Witch Trials. So, the USS Salem it was commissioned in 1949. 
and was the Navy's last heavy cruiser to enter service. I'm trying to think of where cruiser falls in like the weight bracket, so to speak, because you have usually destroyer, frigate, cruiser, battleship, right? About yeah, that sounds about okay. Right. Okay, so so this thing's just shy of a battleship. It's under a battleship over a cruiser, right. it's a heavy cruiser. So she is also the only heavy Des Moines class cruiser still in existence. She traveled the world before going to her final mooring in Quincy, and she never fired her guns in anger. She only fired her guns in passive aggressiveness? In military terms, firing your guns in anger is firing your guns at the enemy. Hmm, okay. Taking, being in battle. Okay. But because of never firing her guns in anger, that was actually used by her crew as a mantle to signify that she supported relief and peace efforts around the world. So she's decommissioned in 1959 and then recommissioned as part of the U.S. Naval Shipbuilding Museum. Now, she was, you know, a peaceful vessel. She was commissioned after World War II, never actually participated in any battles. But she was featured on the Ghost Hunters from Sci-Fi Channel, an investigation that was done in 2009. <laughs> it is reported that visitors, because of this show, can now frequently hear voices of disembodied people, whales, and people watching them or following them as they're touring the cruiser. I, I would love to see the reports of these incidents, like just the difference between before the sci-fi channel special and after yeah oh what i think it is is i think the ghost hunters show just left some of their stuff there and that that's why that's happening now oh i was just gonna say you know old houses talk i can only imagine an old ship gets even more and you know hey hey please change the pipe please <laughs> all right all right you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna sound like i'm almost ready to blow yeah. So now we're going to go on to the USS Wisconsin. Hey! Hey! Uh, she's in Norfolk, Virginia. Her nickname, the Big Whiskey. Yeah, you know, that's applicable for Wisconsin. Yeah. She is, or was, one of the largest vessels ever built from the Iowa-class battleships. Need nearly three football fields in length, and of course, the serious firepower that she had on board. If the cannon is big enough for your gun crew to crawl in, all right, the cannon might be big enough. Her guns had a, a range of 24 miles. Okay, we are going to be doing an episode on this Wisconsin at some point, probably in a year or two. I can't wait for that. <laughs> but uh, 24 miles. Uh, gunnery crew, do you not see the enemy on the horizon? No, Captain. That's right. I'd like to not see them still. <laughs> <laughs> and when a full broadside is fired, the ship has actually moved sideways four feet. Okay, so the recoil is uh, very real. Very real. 
Uh, she's commissioned in 1944 and would see six decades of battles, including Korea, Operation Desert Storm, World War II, of course. So during these, during her operational life, she took one direct hit during a bombardment of North Korea. Now, not much damage actually occurred, but three men were injured. So after she got hit, in response, the Wisconsin swung her guns around and unloaded all nine of her 50 caliber guns. This was a full salvo, or in 1700s terms, a full broadside. Or in nerd terms, deca, 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 deca. Just massive boom. This was a 16-inch guns. And yeah, she fired a full salvo against the battery that hit her. Soon to be X-battery. Well, yeah. The battery was obliterated. Once the smoke cleared because there was a massive amount of smoke that came out of a full broadside. One of the escort ships near Wisconsin, the USS Buck, they flash a message to her with their signal lamp that read, temper, temper. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's a very Wisconsinite thing. You know what, I just, I'm, I'm sure you didn't mean anything by it, but we're just going to put you you know, in the ground real fast before you hurt yourself. The captain said, I don't want to see it anymore. And they never did. So as you can imagine, six decades of warfare will leave a mark. They say that someone or something still makes a lot of racket on the vessel and is very happy to show off for those that are brave enough to visit. And then we have the USS Sullivan's. You remember we talked about her? We did talk about the Sullivans she, in a whole episode. Yeah, she's in Buffalo, New York right now, refloated and getting ready for visitors again. This is, of course, the only ship to be named after more than one person. After the five Sullivan brothers who were killed aboard the USS Wanu in World War II during a submarine attack. So visitors to the Sullivans have reported radios clicking on by themselves and broadcasting static electronic beeps as if relaying a the pinging of a radar you know the ping ping they report flickering lights and a strange shadowy figure constantly roaming the decks oh not the halls the decks the decks and they think that this is probably the spirit of the eldest brother of the five, George Sullivan. Hmm. There's a picture of the five brothers in uniform aboard the, the Janu. And it is mounted prominently in the ship. But it is said that if you try to take a picture of the image, only four of the brothers appear. George's image never shows. It is believed that he roams the seas and ships, still looking for his brothers. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So, the USS Arizona, I'm sure you've heard of her. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a pretty infamous ship in the uh, history of the U.S. Navy. Yeah. Uh, she's in Pearl Harbor, 
well, under Pearl Harbor. But you can still visit her. There is a memorial built over her. Well, I've I been... believe it has a, a glass floor so you can actually see the ship, can't you? No. No? No. no. I've been there many times. No. There is a memorial wall with the names of every sailor that uh, is still aboard her. Mm. So, it is a very personal experience going there. And some people say that it's eerie to see it. There are still oil drops that are leaking out of her oil tanks. I think it was like one every minute or two. And they say that is the tears of the Arizona. They say that if you stare at the waters long enough, you may even see an anguished face appear. There have also been reports of eerie noises and disembodied screams that still come from the harbor. Well, as many as lost that lost their lives in the attack, that yeah, isn't the craziest thing. Eleven hundred just on the Arizona, right? Yeah. So now we go to the USS Lexington. She is in Corpus Christi, Texas. I've been aboard her as well. Her nickname, the Blue Ghost, because the Japanese were like, we sank her. Sink her again. Okay, we sunk her again. Wait, what the heck? Why is she here again? They thought now, they sank her like four different times. Now, when you say they sank her, do you mean like the U.S. government just kept on building more Lexingtons? Same make, same model? Or like the Japanese did what should have been, in their opinion, a direct sinkable hit? This was the same boat. She was reported sunk four times by the enemy. Eventually, she was finally hit at the Battle of the Coral Sea, fighting alongside the Yorktown in May of 1942. Now, when the word of the Lex going down reached the Massachusetts Four River Shipyard, they were almost done with the new USS Cabot, and they decided that the Lady Lex was going to sail again. So they renamed her the USS Lexington, and went <laughs> right back out into the Pacific to rejoin the fight. Then, so believe sunk four times, actually sunk once, and then just immediately back on the front. Yep. Now, she went on to set a lot more records than any other Essex-class carrier, spending a total of 21 months in combat. Oh, wow. Her air crew destroyed 372 enemy aircraft in the air and another 475 on the ground during her five decades in service she would earn 11 battle stars along with the presidential citation for exceptional bravery so of course a legacy like this does not go away quietly no the Lexington reports hundreds of supernatural activities every year. Among some of the most famous are sightings of sailors guiding lost guests back to the deck and a sailor being mistaken as a museum docket, giving lectures of how the engines work before just vanishing into thin air. So, any, any trapped aborder... You know, nice, benevolent, helpful. 
Like, oh, okay, well, you're interested in the history. Here, let me tell you about this engine. Uh, manual says three-quarter turns left, go four. Extra one for love. So, yeah. These guys are helpful, at least. And they're not trying to scare the crap out of people. But, I mean, you never know. They may become evil. <laughs> so that's going to bring us to the USS Yorktown. She's in Charleston, South Carolina. So she is known as the Fighting Lady. This is the third Yorktown and one of only eight active aircraft carriers left in the country after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So the U.S. Signal Corps receives intelligence that the enemy planned to attack at the Coral Sea. So she joins the Lexington, who we just talked about, and mm -hmm. they both steam into the South Pacific. So the Lex was sunk, as we said before, and the Yorktown was actually also very badly damaged. As has been known to happen in wartime. And then the naval intelligence said, oh, I think they're going after Midway. And this is going to be a very important battle. So the estimates on the repairs of the Yorktown would be 90 days. But Admiral Nimitz said, yeah, that's not going to work for me. Midway is going to be huge. We're going to need every ship we can get. So three days later, the Yorktown was back at sea. It's amazing what flex tape can do. Actually, there was still a hole in her flight deck. She had no radar and she was leaking fuel. Huh. I'm and wondering how the Admiral thought that she would be helpful in the battle. Well, they deployed a repair team with them. They did her repairs while at sea. All right. We just won't tell OSHA. <laughs> OSHA didn't exist. They didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> That's a violation. That's a violation. And that is definitely a violation. That hole is big enough for two guys to fall through. But, you I'll know. Your caution sign. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure those sailors were like, they're sending us back out. We look like this. I don't think we're coming home. And, of course, they're right. She did sink and took 141 men with her. They do say that she sank honorably, stern first, with her battle flags flying until the end. Now, what's an honorable sinking compared to a non-honorable sinking? Any other way? Oh, pretty much the just uh, a slow, almost graceful descent. Mm-hmm. While the ship does not break apart into pieces. Okay. With her battle flags flying proudly. So the fourth one is commissioned in 53. And it was a ongoing legacy to the sailors who had come before them. So she was decommissioned in 75 and was moored in Charleston in South Carolina. I don't know if I said that before or not. So if I did, it's repeated. If I didn't, you know it now. <laughs> so you know the third Yorktown is at the bottom of the Pacific and when they discover the wreckage in 1998 they find that the anti-aircraft guns were still pointed to the sky as if looking for planes to shoot down and of course as we've been learning 
if your namesake goes down, those sailors go to the next one. Their commission didn't end. So there have been countless visitors that have reported sightings of sailors still walking along the Yorktown. There's reports of unexplainable apparitions and shadowy figures caught on film. They report whispers and slamming bulkhead doors. I have a quote from a Yorktown Museum employee. Quote, I think some of these men love this old ship so much, they just want to come back and stay a while. And if there are ghosts, well, there are men, and they're the good guys. I mean, if they're not being malevolent. Yeah. So have you ever heard of the Navy's ghost blimp? A ghost blimp? Mm-hmm. Um, no, because blimps fly. And I don't think aircraft carriers are really uh, set to catch dirigibles or help them take off. Well, this was a blimp. It was, was an L-8. And it was patrolling the California coast for Japanese subs. Oh, yep. Yep, World War II, they were pretty paranoid about that, understandably. And when she returned, her two-man crew was nowhere to be found. What? Mm-hmm. What? Yep. But so... she landed fine and dandy. <laughs> well, we'll get into the story. We'll get into I the little questions. Hit. Yeah, we'll get into the little history here. So, about uh, 0600 on August 16th, 1942, the blimp, the... L-8 took off from a small airfield on Treasure Island. This was a artificial island in San Francisco Bay. And it was built for a World's Fair that had just happened not too long ago. And uh, she was crewed by Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. Just five hours later, the L-8 crashed on a suburban street in Daly City, California. She scraped rooftops and took out power lines on her descent to the ground. And local fire crews had to put out a blaze that was left by the blimp in the nearby hills. They wanted to get there really quick so they could rescue the crew. But when they got there, they couldn't find anybody. They had just vanished. And, you know, even before the crash site was cleaned up, the newspaperman had already given it a nickname, the ghost blimp. The, <laughs> the wreckage was still hot and they had already called, and they're already calling it the ghost blimp. Were the ensign or officer ever found, living or otherwise? No. The, the, uh, L8 was a former Goodyear blimp. Remember those? I think they still exist. Sometimes, don't they? I do see a blimp every once in a while. Not a Goodyear one. This one's just pure white. Mm. <laughs> I used to live near a World War II blimp base when I lived in South Texas near Galveston. I didn't realize that... Uh... We tried to use blimps in World War II. Oh, yes. They were Just very... On the home front? Yeah, they were very good for coastal patrols because they could stay up for very long periods of time, go very slowly, 
and fly at very low altitudes and then just hover over targets. Old school uh, helicopter. Filled with gas? Explosive gas? I mean, a helicopter has gas, too. But, I mean, yeah, they were, you know, doing the role of a helicopter that would nowadays. But, I mean, fixed-wing aircraft at the time couldn't do anything like that. Yeah, yeah. You need very, very specific conditions in order to be able to hover as an aircraft. Yeah, it's very, very specific. Like the wind speed, being able to keep it in one place. Mm -hmm. So, Cody and Adams, they were both very experienced airship pilots. Cody had graduated from the Naval Academy, and Adams had been in the Navy for over a decade already, and he was actually just a recently commissioned officer. He had already survived a famous airship disaster, which was the crashing and sinking of the USS Macon off of the California coast in 35. Oh, I, I was going to guess the Hindenburg. That, that's Bad. the only famous airship disaster I know. Yes, that is a very famous one, but it was New Jersey, not New York. There was supposed to be a third man, a, an enlisted man, machinist mate, go MMs, named James Riley Hill, but Cody ordered him off just before the blimp leaves. He was concerned about the added weight. So it could have been three men missing, but it was just two because he told the enlisted guy, get off my boat. We don't want you. Stinky enlisted person. Well, maybe if they let the enlisted men shower more than once a week, they may be less stinky. I'm not touching that. <laughs> so the first hour and a half of the flight seems to be just fine. Nothing happened. And then at 0750, the men radioed that they had spotted an oil slick in the water, which at this time was a indication of a possible submarine. So they were going to investigate it. This was the last time anybody would hear from them. So the Navy, they get worried because there's no ready communication anymore. So they send out search planes. Now the military heard that the blimp had landed at a nearby base and that the two pilots had gotten out. But of course, this news proved to be wrong. Now, there are reports that the blimp touched down on a beach about a mile away from that base, and the bystander said that there was no one on board. Number of them tried to restrain it by grabbing the ropes and, you know, keep it on the ground, but it soon just went right back up in the air and started going towards Daly City. When the police and fire department finally get to that blimp, they find that the control car's door was open and no signs of fire or other damage at all. And that the radio was working and that both parachutes were still there. Oh, wow. They did find something missing, though. What was missing? A anti-submarine death charge. Oh. Yeah. But then they found it. <laughs> Where? A nearby golf course. Ah. <laughs> well. Uh, if a new hole is blown in the course, is that a hole in one then? Or is that par? I think it's a new hazard. 
Oh. If your hit ball the hits depth. the depth charge, roll yeah, the die, ball. see if it explodes. Yeah. <laughs> now, they also saw that the life jackets were missing. But that was not surprising as it was standard practice for the pilots to wear their life jackets while in the air. I mean, yeah, if they're patrolling over the sea, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the mystery just gets worse as investigators probe deeper into this. Because the waters off of San Francisco that day were very, very busy with fishing boats and Navy and Coast Guard ships. So everybody saw this blimp's movements. So even if they weren't in you know, they were always like, whether it was civilian or military, visual observation could be maintained. Yeah. Blimp. Yeah. And at, at no point, nobody saw two guys like depth charge, toss it. That's extra way. We're, we're losing control. We're losing altitude. Uh, toss out the Toss out the radio. That's just weighing us down. We're trying to land safely. Okay, this is probably the best chance we have to jump and live. Nope. Let's bail. Nope. They saw... Yeah. They saw them drop two flares over the oil slate to mark its location, and then started going up. There was a passing Pan Am Clipper seaplane that observed it while it was doing this. A search plane spotted it 2,000 feet in the air, which is twice as high as it normally flew before it went back under the clouds. And on the ground, hundreds of people saw and followed this deflating and increasingly misshapen craft as it started drifting down and down and down and down and down. One person described it as looking like a, quote, big broken wiener. Uh, Some people took photos, and the police did their utmost best to confiscate these photos. Oh, because it was photo. It was unauthorized photos of a military material. A lot of things like that, I'm sure. Now, as it is quite often done, you know, witnesses they're not reliable, no matter what people say. And in this case, there were a lot of contrary reports. Some people said, there's no one on board to blimp. A woman that was horseback riding said that she'd seen three men on board with, through her binoculars. And other people reported seeing men parachuting. Now, of course, uh, the Navy continues to search the waters off of San Francisco Bay for a number of days. One theory was that Cody and Adams had been picked up by a ship that hadn't been able to report their rescue yet because they were under radio silence. But unfortunately, no trace of either men or the life jackets have ever been found. Hmm. Some of the theories that had emerged over the years that the is that the men had been captured by the Japanese sub that they had found. They had been, they have defected to the Japanese sub that they found. They had been murdered by a stowaway. Maybe that machinist mate got pissed off being dismissed by two officers that he went up there with them and murdered them. 
They had killed each other in a fight over a woman. And, of course, the creme de la creme. They had been abducted by aliens. Live long and prosper. I can't do it with my left hand. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm only half Vulcan, like Spock. Now, modern experts today have a theory. They just fell out. Probably went to try to repair something outside of the craft and lost their footing. Then the other man went out to try to rescue them and fell as well. And the Navy, you know, they're like, that's... We don't know. Well, and I was going to say, like, the, the Navy doesn't like to report accidents like that because it is a bit embarrassing. It can be, yeah. Per Personally, uh, I subscribe to the alien theory. Of course you do, I know. That's... I, I knew that was going to be foremost on your mind. That's why it was in there. It was the... It's the only logical explanation. Yes. And now they're sailing among the stars. True rocket men. Uh, they probably died of old age already. Wow. Way to end this on a downer. <laughs> Some have suggested that one man fell and the other one jumped in to go get him. But that doesn't really make sense because there's a radio right there. The guy, other guy <laughs> would radio for assistance. <laughs> Uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, sometimes emotions overtake logic. But yeah, yeah no, that, but... that isn't a very sensible explanation because, you know, you train a lot. But you... Yes. And there's a very deep instinct that is put into every sailor. You don't abandon your ship unless you absolutely have to. Even if it's a skyship? A ship's a ship. Whether it's a skyship, a land ship. Or a sea ship. I mean, don't give up the ship is the U.S. Navy's unofficial motto. Um, man, I have, I have a shirt idea now. Okay. Don't lose your ship. Don't lose your ship? Don't lose your ship. Text or picture? I, I mean, it, the, the implication is don't lose your shit, but... We'll discuss later. We'll discuss later. So, if you want to go see this control car... From the L.A., you can. It's in the National Naval Aviation Museum. Oh, it was relatively undamaged after the crash? It, it, yeah, I mean, it didn't get too much damage. There's pictures out there of how they found it. They found it pretty much uh, on its butt, standing straight up in the uh, air. So but, it ascended honorably. Yeah, yes. But, I mean, you can always repair things to put in museums. That's that's fair. That's fair. I just I hear uncontrolled descent of a lighter than aircraft, and I'm just thinking of you know, never mind the crash. You're talking about it hitting power lines and roofs, and it's just that's going to need more than a some elbow grease and spit. Well, remember the control car is a hell of a lot smaller than the rest of the blimp as well. Mm. The majority of a blimp is that envelope that holds the gases it uses to go up. Is that the actual term? An envelope? Yes. Weird. I would have just called it a balloon. It could be balloon as well. It's both a use, but yes. I've heard it both ways. Oh. Huh. 
the more you know. Da, da, da. And knowing is half the battle. The other half is about 19 very large guns that the recoil will push you back four feet. <laughs> so there's going to be one more that I want to share with you. It is one that I know of. I heard, well, I've heard of that was on the boat I served on. Oh, cool. So this boat's still in active duty. Nobody's going to get to see her. She's also a nuclear powered boat, so you'll never get to see her anyway. She will never be made into a museum. But during one yard period, long time ago before I got there, which was a long time ago from now, so a very long time ago. So about they, two long times ago. Yes. A long, long time ago in a shipyard far, far away. They were doing repairs, doing a, a refitting, if you will. And they were working down in the propulsion plant and they were sealing up a steam tank for the main engine. The thing is, there was somebody inside that steam tank. Oh no. Oh yes. They sealed it up and they introduced steam to pressure to make sure that everything was holding. The civilian did not make it. So they say, I never heard it myself, but other guys have said that they have heard it. Uh, while underway, they will hear knocking in that steam tank of somebody trying to get your attention to let them out. And that's my ghost story. Well, that's, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there there is one thing I'm surprised that we haven't brought up. What's that? Uh, Flight 19. Flight 19. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. What made the Bermuda Triangle famous for pretty much a century. Our EXO's first segment, you want to go into Flight 19 for the audience? Oh, very well, if, if you insist. So. Uh, oh, we feel excited. The EXO's going for it. For those of you who don't know, the area immediately east of Florida, going up to Bermuda, down to Puerto Rico, and then back up to Florida, kind of has a reputation. Uh, it's called the Bermuda Triangle. Maybe you heard of it. No, I haven't. And Please, what is, what, what is it? What, what happens there? All right. What happens there? Weird stuff. A lot of weird stuff happens there. Um... Ship disappearances, aircraft disappearances, navigation equipment acting weird. You know, it, it has hundreds of weird incidents. But, and this goes all the way back to, you know, mid-1800s. But what really put it on the map for, you know, being in pop culture, so to speak, was a Navy training flight called Flight 19. This was... Five, you know, torpedo planes, effectively. And it was meant to be a training flight to learn navigation and, you know, a simulated bombing run. So I believe officially it is a navigation error that the United States Navy decided to chalk this up to. Officially. Because, officially. Because they didn't want to, you know, posthumaneously blame the lieutenant uh charles taylor for the deaths of you know 14 navy personnel 
Yeah, but the oh. guy was so experienced, he, he, he doesn't make that kind of mistake. Exactly, exactly. So, effectively, what happened? Yeah, it's not so easy, is it, Exo? No, it's not. <laughs> so, the flight leader was one Lieutenant Charles Taylor. He had over 2,500 flying hours, mostly in aircraft that he was training the flight crew in. And his trainees each had 300 hours of flight time total and 60 flight hours in the aircraft that they were training in. Yeah, usually so, when a pilot is assigned an aircraft, that's their aircraft for their entire career. So yeah. the so, lieutenant was very, very, very familiar with the aircraft. Yeah, he he knew what the heck he was doing. You know, over 100 days in the sky, it's practically second nature at that point. Uh, so every aircraft was a Grumman TDF Avenger uh, built by GM. Who knew they did more than just cars? I did. I mean, I did too, but maybe not all of our listeners knew. I did. <laughs> hey, man, uh, I, I have a GM car right in my driveway. But do you have a GM gun? No. No. Oh, you had to think about that. You had to think about that one. No. Mine's German. Yeah. But each of these aircraft had all the preparations done that you would expect for a navigation training flight. You know, full tank of gas, you know, pre-flight checks, green across the board, nothing seemed to miss. So the exercise was meant to be three different legs. Fly east from Florida to, I don't know what that island is. Uh, looks like a little island in the Florida Keys. Uh, leave Fort Lauderdale on a heading, heading well, at a, on a heading of zero nine one for fifty six miles, dropping bombs at Hens and Chicken Shoals, then at about fifteen hundred, continue heading on zero nine one for sixty seven more miles, turn left to a heading of three four six degrees and fly seventy three nautical miles, and then turn left to a heading of two four. One degrees for 120 miles back to NES Fort Lauderdale. So a pretty cut and dry training flight. However, it looks like what happened was not exactly sure why. Instrument error, pilot error, weather causing them to get turned around. They got lost. And when I say lost, I mean that in every sense of the word. The, the plane still haven't been found. Several times over the years, you know, people have thought they found wreckage from the flights, but it's always come up as something else. The Navy investigated this for months. A 500-page paper was written. And what the Navy believes is that Lieutenant Charles Taylor had mistaken believed that the small islands they passed over were the Florida Keys and that his flight was the Gulf of Mexico and that heading northeast would take them to Florida. So their first thought is that this guy, again, with thousands of hours in aircraft, thought he was on the wrong side of Florida. Um, they found it odd that he refused to change the radio training frequency and look for the radio frequency for, you know, SOS. Um, 
they say he was not at fault because his compass started, his compass stopped working. And the loss of one of the planes was attributed to an explosion. Oh, I think you're thinking of the Mariner, the one of the rescue flights that went out. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Jeez, I'm just jumping all over the place. This is a very oddly organized Wikipedia article. Cleo, why are you whining? Because she knows. She could feel your your feelings of, of being thrown into the driver's seat. <laughs> As the training exercise continued, and the trainees were realizing something wasn't right because they had not encountered land they were supposed to find some time ago. The flight instructor for another flight was catching some of the radio transmissions of Flight 19 and overheard one of uh, Powers' trainees asking for a compass reading and Powers replying that he didn't know where they were and they must have gotten lost after the last turn. Cox, the instructor for this other training flight, you know, identified himself and asked that, you know, they identify who they are and they can start rescue operations. And the response after a few moments was a request from others in the flight for suggestions. After Cox tried to reach out again, Taylor, you know, the commanding officer of the flight that ultimately became lost, was then asking Cox, you know, what is your trouble? Both of my compasses are out. And that he was trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's over land, but it's broken, and he's pretty sure that he's in the Keys, but he doesn't know how far down. He doesn't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale from where he was. Cox then informed the NAS, the Naval Aircraft Service. Naval Air Station. Naval Air Station, okay. So he informed, informed the Navy Air Station that Flight 19 was lost and advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. And again, this is information he gave based off of what he received. So if Taylor was truly lost, he may have just made things worse inadvertently. The base asked if the flight leader's aircraft was equipped with standard uh, IFF transmitters, you know, which we used to triangulate the flight's position, but the message was never acknowledged. Uh, later on, they received a transmission saying we were heading 30 degrees for 45 minutes, which is a very northerly facing northeast. Then we'll fly north to make sure that we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. During that time, no bearings could be made on the flight and the IFF could not be picked up still. Taylor was told to broadcast on 4805 kilohertz, but again, the order was never acknowledged, so he was asked to switch to 3000 kilohertz and for the search frequency. But Taylor replied, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. So it's safe to say he was worried about losing uh, contact with his entire squadron if he switched radio frequencies. Which instrument flying, you really rely on your instruments and contact with your buddies. Yeah, but they're going to be in formation anyway, so he would have visual contact with them. Several minutes later, he was again asked to turn his transmitter for uh, YG, which is another frequency. Uh, and your, they were just trying. That's your really, IFF. What's that? That's your IFF. Okay. Wikipedia says YG. Right. Which is, it was the YG back then that is 
IFF today. Okay. And again, Taylor just never acknowledged, but a few minutes later, he advised his flight, change course to 90 degrees due east for 10 minutes. And about the same time, someone in the flight said, you know, damn, if we could just fly west, we would go at home. Head west, damn it. This difference of opinion later led to questions as to why the students did not simply head west on their own. And the only explanation people have is military discipline. Your commanding yeah. officer says one thing and you do it. That's what it is. They're not going to break off. They're going to follow orders. And the weather continued to deteriorate. You know, this is the ocean. Weather can get weird quite often. Radio contact became intermittent, and it was believed the five aircraft by this point were more than 200 miles, nautical miles, out to sea east of the Florida Peninsula. Taylor radioed, will fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas, and requested a weather check at 1724. By 1750, several land-based radio stations had triangulated Flight 19's position as being 100 miles, 100 nautical miles, um, north of where they were expected to be. Um, no, more than that, everyone, really. There, it's they. That's by the scale of this. You're actually they're over 200 nautical miles north of where they were supposed to make their west turn, go back to Florida. Yeah. Um, and once again, they were reaching out to Taylor, but Taylor was either not receiving or not even acknowledging the orders he was receiving. At 1,804, he radioed his flight holding 270. We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. By that time, the weather had deteriorated even more and the sun had set. Around 1820, Taylor's last message was received, and he was heard saying, all planes, close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. And that was the last report But yeah, Taylor. He- you see, he, Taylor didn't know whether he was in the Gulf of Mexico or whether he was uh, off the Atlantic. So that's why that was the whole east-west, east-west, east-west. They didn't know where the hell they were. Mm-hmm. So his hey, hey. trainees were like, we need to go west because they think they know where they're going, where they are, but they don't know either. So Taylor's just trying to make the best decisions he can based on his experience and he just didn't do it right right but the uh aftermath of this report was a very embarrassing incident for the navy and it just catapulted the bermuda triangle from being a very fringe sailor's ghost story to being in the popular culture mm-hmm. all right guys well i think that's gonna be it for today's episode so tell me something exo do you still want to mutiny yeah or are you are you now happy with being the exo (laughs) i (laughs) there were so many words (laughs) all right guys well thank you for spending your halloween with us we hope you have a enjoyable trick-or-treating if that's something you do, or, you know, TPing somebody's house or what other trickery that you do, just leave the black cats alone. They don't deserve it. And as always, if you want to contact us, you can do so. Where, Exo? At USN History Pod. Or you can email us at 
U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Or there's another one. What? Discord. We're on Discord. What? Captain, is that why the download speeds have been so slow? You set up a server in the boiler room? Forecastle, but... Oh, okay. Well, I'll just have to, you know, move my station up there then. Maybe I can get a better Wi-Fi signal up there. Maybe. You never know. You can give it a try. You're more than welcome to join us on Discord too, XO. Uh, why don't you share what the Discord is? There's a link in the show notes. Well, oh, well, that makes it easy for future episodes for me. That does. <laughs> <laughs> and there you can talk to each other. You can even talk to us. We will make appearances and, and talk to y'all if you like. So anything else you would like to go out with Mr. Exo Steven? Uh, I wish you fair winds following seas. And if you ever find yourself leaving Florida, be sure to remember whether you're going in the Gulf or the Atlantic. And, you know, GPS. Error, error. Please make a U-turn. Anywhere, really. It's an open sky. Bye, everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing.